Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z.
Hey, welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast. My name is Mark Striegel, and right there, classic Van Halen off the 1984 record, Hot for Teacher, of course. And joining me, a Van Halen expert, he is the author of Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, is author Greg Renoff. Greg. Hey, Mark. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, fourth time here, and I got to tell you, I get so many comments about your previous appearances on the show. People just really love hearing you talk about Van Halen. <laughs> I uh, I'm really happy to hear that, and uh, it's fourth time. It's a it's a uh, it's a nice honor to have come on four times. So hopefully, I'm not going to wear out my welcome. But thanks, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I actually just the the producer. There's this new TV show on called Ozzy and Jack's World Detour, which I've been hyping on the show. We just had Jack Osborne on, and anyways, the producer of that show uh, told me that he listened to the first podcast you did with me just recently, and then he had to listen to the next next two. He thought they were oh, so cool. good. So yeah, he's cool. a big Van Halen fan. So having said that, we just heard Hot for Teacher and. That's off of the 1984 record, and you recently wrote an article for Ultimate Classic Rock. It's up online at ultimateclassicrock.com, and the article was titled How David Lee Roth Really Left Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Now, now your book, Van Halen Rising, which I highly recommend all the Talking Metal listeners pick up, deals specifically with the early era of Van Halen going up to the first right after the first record right right yeah so this is a totally different time frame that we haven't spoken with you about and that you wrote this brief article for um ultimate classic rock that that i wanted to get into because I, I i find it an exciting time uh, in van halen history because for me personally um, i'm 46 years old you know i wasn't i wasn't listening to the first Van Halen record in 1978 when it came out. However, by the time I was 12 to, you know, 16, that, that time frame, I was, I was like obsessed with these guys. And, and I specifically remember this whole era mm-hmm. of David Lee Roth re- leaving the band and the emotions and the feelings that I had about the whole thing, uh, which, which were big for, for a, a teenager who was kind of a, a music geek, you know? And, and so, one of the things you do in this classic uh, ultimate classic rock article is you know you basically talk about this this date that has kind of become part of Van Halen lore if you will April 1st 1985 uh, the day that many people think David Lee Roth shocked the rock world by announcing he was leaving Van Halen to pursue a solo career so let's talk about that date april 1st 1985 what you know yeah it's if anything, i i you know that whole um that date i don't know when or how that date got sort of invented on the internet um but what it, i did in researching the book i was doing some reading and i remember again the, the my book van halen rising doesn't actually cover this period but it, it was this situation where i was doing some reading and i would be reading april 1st i'm like he announced it on april fool's day i said oh that's sort of weird i don't remember that but you know right. that was what people were saying this and then um i wanted to write this article for ultimate classic rock and i ended up going back through rolling stone and i started reading rolling stone magazine on microfilm in the library and scrolling through march april may and i'm going you know i'm going well it must be in here i'm going back and looking and looking it's not in there um and so i again i don't really know where that just that sort of popped up but it's it's actually not true that there was any announcement on april 1st the announcement actually came in around um july basically july in late yeah july 85 eddie tells Rolling Stone and then the the article you know the hits the newsstand or hits the newsstands probably a little bit earlier and that's it like late July is when the news actually came out now people around the band 
knew that that things had gone bad. But in terms of the general public knowing that there was this fracture in Van Halen that was severe. And as I mentioned, the article that, you know, in July 4th issue of Rolling Stone, which probably again came out a few weeks earlier, said that their Van Halen was permanently halt on permanent hold. They're scouting around for new lead singer. So there were definitely hints. But in terms of the sort of it's over, Eddie blasts Roth in the uh, the, in that mid mid August issue of Rolling Stone saying, quote, Dave left to be a movie star. You know, he even had the balls to ask if I'd write the score for his new movie for him. Uh, and he said, I'm moving on. And so that was the sort of the the I think for most fans, that's how they found out. Like 98 percent of us who were, weren't in Los Angeles and didn't maybe know more. That was what was going on. Right. Uh, back in those days, you know, there was no Internet. Right. It's like nowadays, you know, Slash says something and his roadie tells somebody and then the next thing you know it's on it's on the internet and, and stuff just spreads so fast via via internet and text messages and, and stuff like that. Back in those days things could go months and, and years without word getting out. Oh yeah, and I and you know, I getting back to the 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 uh, issue of how the April first date started I remember, and you probably remember people, oh, Dave's going to quit Van Halen. There were, you know, as a fan at the time, and as I've talked about, this was basically my first year of Van Halen fandom, 84 to 85. I remember being nervous because there were these these hints that you were reading in magazines, like little like that thing in Rolling Stone. And there were some of the guitar magazines. There were these little, you know, Eddie Van Halen's been hanging out with Patti Smythe, wants right. her to sing. You know, so there were these sort of hints, but there was no finality to it until uh, Eddie – basically unloaded on Roth and Rolling Stone in that issue in August. Right. So so kind of to back up a little bit from this point, we're th- we're talking about, you know, July 1985. Let's let's go back to to 1984. We we just heard the song Hot for Teacher. Um that album just such a great record. So many great songs. Uh no cover songs on that record, which was, you know, rare for Van Halen, especially after Diver Down, which what had five covers on it, I think, or or six. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, so so they were they were back with an album of of all original material. Now a couple of those songs on that that record were were older songs, right? House of Correct. Pain, and is it Girl Gone Bad or? Well, Girl Gone Bad at least dated back a year earlier. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was another song on there. I don't think there. No, if there was any other songs. Jump, Jump dated back. At least a couple of years. I mean, really? Wow. That the 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 uh, from what I understand, 1981 or 82, Eddie added this demo of Jump, which was basically just a riff. You know, basically the riff wasn't really a song, but, but it was the idea for Jump on a cassette and had played it for Ted Templeman and Roth and some of the other guys in the band, but even his brother apparently, who were not particularly enthused about him taking up the keyboards right. as a full time instrument. And so, um, yeah, but House of Pain is the song that would be the the oldest of the of the bunch there. Cool. And the song we just heard coming into the show, Hot for Teacher, uh, where did that song come from? Because it almost sounds like it, it started out of a jam session or something, the way it starts with the drums and then the, the tapping on the guitar. It it almost seems like it's like a freeform jam there at the beginning. Is is that is that where it started from? Do you have any history behind that specifically? Yeah. Yeah. So the if you listen uh, to the brother, some of the, the bootlegs that are around from the early club days, they were definitely well um, familiar with what you call boogie rock. So ZZ Top and there was another group called Cactus who they really, really liked. And there was a, a band, uh, a song called Parchment Farm, which sort of became the the blueprint for uh, I'm the One. Um, this song in particular is interesting. I think if you if you listen to a, a album called Spectrum by Billy Cobham, there's a song on that album called Quadrant Four, which is actually, uh, it's a fusion album, jazz fusion. And Tommy Boland plays guitar on it. And if you listen to it, wow. the pattern, the drum pattern is very, very similar. So I sort of imagine that the brothers who did like fusion, jazz fusion and sort of their, what do I call it, like kind of their geekiness in terms of their interest in, in pushing the envelope, uh, maybe outside what they would do in Van Halen. They were listening to Jeff Beck's Wired and some of this other fusion at the time. I don't um, doubt that they heard that song because if you listen to it, it's pretty it's pretty clear the pattern, the sort of that, that boogie, that shuffle pattern on the drums. Um, and then it, it became this, uh, from what I, I know from talking to Ted Templeman, the song itself became very much this project for Roth and the studio and the rest of the band. Right. They had, had, they had the pattern, but they also were working on the breakdown parts and that they brought tables, 
kids tables, Roth brought kids tables and chairs and set up bottles and cans and set up basically like a little school room. They simulated a little school bell wow. to, to really to make the uh, to, to get them into the part. And so Templeman, when I talked to him about this, talked about how particularly how how uh, that really showed Ross creativity that he was willing to go to the extra mile to be like, it's not just enough for us to sit here around a microphone and pretend we're going to be in the school room. We're going to set up these little they had little school desks right. in 5150. Um, so, you know, for me, that is something that is run through the throat of all the Van Halen records that what you kind of call the power shuffle. You know, I'm the one, the full bug. Yeah. Hot for teacher. These these are the songs that for me was always a, a big, uh, you know, bottoms up, a big part of the Van Halen sound. And this one is, I think, arguably the most um, well-developed of those shuffles. I mean, it really, really is just so locked in and so powerful. And uh, yeah, that song, again, has that, I think, that older genesis of that idea. But they really took it and did something and, of course, made it. Roth made it a very commercial, a commercial thing with the lyrics and everything. I think if, yeah. Roth had, you know, I can imagine another lyricist coming up with a, a chorus and an idea for the song that wouldn't have been halfway as engaging to teenagers that, as we all know, that was like, you know, as a teenager, you immediately snicker because you understand. Yeah. Uh, as a boy, a six year old boy, that there are some teachers who are pretty hot and you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm in this classroom with this very hot young woman. Yeah. Um, so Roth kind of, you know, he, he knew how to, how to connect no, lyrically. And, and I think, yeah, you said young woman. I, I will throw this out there that now the the in the music video, the model that that played the hot teacher, um, just gorgeous woman, obviously. But I believe uh, she was well into her thirties when she when she starred in the in the music video, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this song. Let's go back, Tommy Boland. It was the few. I know he did a fusion record. I think in between when he had been in James Gang and right. Deep Purple, uh, Tommy Boland, of course, the great young guitar player from Iowa, who an American who somehow oh, ended right. up in this British band, legendary band Deep Purple, replacing Blackmore, on and put out one great record called "Come Taste the Band" by by uh, Deep Purple. Um, a Blackmoreless Deep Purple record, which is just fantastic record, uh, but and was never really accepted by the fan base or never did well commercially. But anyways, that aside, Tommy, Tom, this this song, this Tommy Bolin song, tell us again the 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 record and the the uh, the name of the song that you believe mm-hmm. influenced uh, Hot for Teacher. Yeah, if you go, it's on it's on YouTube. It, it, the album came out in 1973. It's uh, was by a jazz drummer named Billy Cobham, okay. who, who would, um, you know, I believe it played with Miles Davis, if I'm remembering correctly. Someone will correct me inevitably in the comments if I'm wrong. Um, and then he brought in Tommy Boland to play on this one track. And ah, it okay. just, you'll, you'll hear it. Um, and actually, I have no doubt that the Deep Purple guys heard this stuff and was like, wow, this guy is amazing. It's, it's an incredible solo. And it just, it has that that shuffle boogie groove with the long drum introduction. Uh, and interestingly enough, it has... Um, a keyboard part by Jan Hammer who, that sounds quite a bit like the tapping Eddie would have done in the introduction. So, wow, you know, it's just sort of a seed of an idea that they probably pulled out and uh, they definitely made it their own. Uh, you know, how they, they pulled it off on Van Halen, you'll you know, hear the difference, but I think the influence is there. Cool. So 1984, the album comes out and it's pretty much an immediate smash hit right mm-hmm. i mean jump i think came the single for jump was out before before the album dropped i believe is that i think a week before that's right yep yeah and and the video for that very simple uh they go on a, a massive world tour mo- i'm guessing mostly sold out shows for that tour and then when when did things start kind of falling apart? Is it on is it on tour? Is it when Roth decides he's going to go off and do this this EP Crazy from the Heat EP? When did when do we feel things start to unravel? I mean, there were there were always you know issues. You know, there was always tension. It seems like between Roth and and, and Eddie, but it seems like they really hit a. a breaking point somewhere around what 1984 possibly 1985 you know i'd even go back i mean probably like ross would would say that he always expected the call to come in at any time to his hotel room that you know that the band has left and <laughs> you're fired you know they've they've all moved on to the next right. city to play the show without you so I think roth always had this sense that he was he was uh in a uncomfortable position in some ways with the brothers but you know i think 
what we could look back on is the aftermath of Diver Down. From what I understand, the time, and if you listen to interviews that Eddie did or read them from 1982, Eddie seemed to be fairly um, enthused about Diver Down when it came out, about even dancing in the street, which he has famously trashed, saying that he really didn't like it and he wished that they had not the song had not come out that way um the the album itself at some point it must have started to stick in his craw about the the way that maybe the cover songs were used or that maybe his the uh, some of his musical pieces were used to perform cover songs and so he builds his own studio and i think right there is where you start to see issues start to develop for, for instance one thing that ends up happening and this has been covered in articles in the press and a couple of, of books have talked about this as well is that there's this this uh, sort of tension that begins to develop around Ted Templeman and Eddie Van Halen. Um, Eddie be, draws closer to his engineer, Don Landy. And in fact, Don is, I, I think, in, in effect, making some decisions about production that were in the past that Ted would have done. But because Eddie's at his house, uh, the studio is in his backyard, Don and Eddie are staying in the studio all night long, Ted will show up and things are being done. And so there's this right. difficult working situation. I, I think that during, all kind of during 1984, during correct. This, right. okay. this would be making of the making of 1980. So the aftermath of diver down, a part of this is Eddie builds his own studio. And I think there starts to be this, this difficulty that develops. And part of that too, it seems to be around, um, Roth as well. And again, that's, that's, you know, that's stuff that, that those guys maybe have not made, clear enough about what exactly went on, but there clearly was some sort of um, issues developing, whether, again, whether Ross early rejections of jump seemed to irk Eddie in some way. Uh, right. I think in the end that we can all agree that jump turned out tremendously well, and it was a, sure. a, a brilliant, a brilliant single. Um, but, you know, then on tour, you know, I, I, if you listen to the bootlegs, I saw this tour. I didn't really think about it. Of course, at the time I had no idea about this, but it just became this very, very segmented performance where you had a 15 minute guitar solo from Eddie. You had these long raps from Roth where he would literally stand up and talk and do stand up in effect for 12 right. minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael did a bass solo. There was a drum solo. There really wasn't a, you know, it didn't feel like it was a very cohesive, a cohesive thing. At some point during the 1984 tour, Roth and Templeman decide or temp, I would say Roth approaches Templeman and says he wants to do this solo record and that they have the wheels start going in motion with that. Uh, Templeman, when I've talked to him about this, has gone to great lengths to, to indicate that this was never meant to be anything but a fun outlet for Dave. And in part, from Templeman's perspective, he thought because things had gotten kind of tense and that things were seemed to be a little bit fragile this right. might give everyone some some time to blow off some steam you know do what you want for six but just sort of a breathing room you know uh templeman also has said to me that you know we were we were bringing in christopher cross uh we were bringing in carl uh the carl from the beach boys there was never you know um there was never any indication on Templeman's perspective, this was supposed to compete with Van Halen. And if anything, it was meant to be sort of a, again, a fun, a fun diversion and something that would be a, a give the band some, as I said, I'm repeating myself, but give the right. band some breathing room. It clearly became something bigger as the singles took off and things like that. Things started to, um, right. you know, unravel. So, the, do you think there was a decision like at the record company level, like, wow, we got to push this EP? Because, I mean, the EP... And the music videos, they just blew up. I mean, they were all over the place. Um, and I'm going to guess that was, from what I've been able to kind of put together, that was something of a surprise. I mean, I don't think that people thought, oh, it's going to flop. But I don't think anyone thought it was going to be a smash hit. And I think they, right. they you know, I think people at Warner Brothers, honestly, probably underestimated Roth. And I think that's probably one of the things that Roth has been faced his whole life is this underestimation of him that he's sort of seen as this guy who's sort of this you know uh guy who's a good front man but when it comes down to really doing songs and doing these other things eddie was sort of seen as the genius and roth was sort of seen the guy who threw the lyrics together and i think for the the, the way that roth ended up packaging it with the videos and the, and the way he pulled off the performances in california girls that came off so well i think that probably was I'm, I'm sure in the boardrooms of warner brothers they were pleasantly surprised i don't think they were going oh this is going to be a you know a platinum Big big seller. So I don't think that was ever the, ever the, uh, ever the idea. Um, 
Yeah, it was an interesting record. Uh, Sid McGinnis, known for his time with the David Letterman band, did a lot of the guitars in that record, as you mentioned. Yeah. Carl Wilson, Christopher Cross doing some backing vocals. Um, Carl Wilson one did. I'm trying to. Th- I don't think he wrote California Girls. I think that was written by Brian Wilson right. and Mike Love. But yeah, the Beach Boy uh, vocalist Carl Wilson. So but, interesting. And there's other Edward something else Winter. I wanted to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I wanted to throw in one other thing too that was going on at this time as yeah. well. So the album comes out, I believe, in January of '85. Roth's EP. So the the album, the EP, was being worked on in the months prior to that. At some point around that time, if you read Roth's book, he talks about how he showed up. I think he says, Ted and I came up to 5150. We were supposed to start working on the new record. We knocked on the door. No one came to the door. Eddie didn't come to the door. Uh, you know, he basically wouldn't come out of the studio. And so there was this sort of weird dysfunction going on, right? That this, this, um, this, this thing that also happened where Roth talked about uh, I, I took some of the songs with me to New Guinea. Roth went to New Guinea in September 1984, or I guess maybe October 1984, on a, on a one of his Jungle Studs adventures. And he talks about how he, you know, lost the tape while he was traveling or something like that. So it was all this sort of passive aggressive stuff going on that was just, I think, um, emblematic of of this deeper issue. And w- the other thing that I learned. Post writing this this classic rock piece, this classic rock magazine piece, I had a chance to talk to uh, Pete Angelus, who was later managed Roth, but also worked um, closely with Van Halen since 1977. He had been part of their lighting crew or their lighting guy, excuse me, and then was their creative consultant, basically the guy who was working with the album covers, coming up with the stage concepts, working with Roth and all of these things. And he talked about to me about how when the movie idea was first considered – Angelus and Roth pitched it to the Van Halen band. So instead of it being uh, Dave's going to make a movie, it was, right. hey, guys, let's do something like the kids are all right, like the who did or um, or Hard Day's Night okay. or something like that. It was going to be a Van Halen movie. And so Angelus had, according to what Angelus told me, he had worked up a script that basically had these guys in it. And, you know, I can. Again, I don't know what exactly it would have been like, but I imagine there would have been sort of like the music video type skits with some live performances, that type of stuff. And Angelus had this idea for this movie and rocked it, too. And uh, the rest of the band passed. So, I mean, that's another part of the story here is that while I don't want to be uh, solely defending Roth here, because I think there's clearly Roth had ambitions, uh, there, there was an opportunity to sort of pitch this to the band to say, hey – how about this? And that was said, they said no to that. And so, you know, there was this, this, it seems like they just, the pieces were coming apart and there was no way to sort of put them back together very easily in the, in the post 1984 tour. So do you believe that there was an actual script written for this movie that included, you know, Eddie, Alex and, and Michael in the movie? Or do you think it was more of just a, a pitch idea? Hey, let's do this movie. And, Uh, and, or do you think, you know, I can't, I can't speak to that, but what I exactly, but what I gathered from Angelus that he had worked up this idea and, and was into it, that he was, you know, they were serious about doing this movie. It wasn't just sort of, they had come up with the idea two days before and just called call the band meeting that this was that they had started working up the idea. Um, and so I don't know, I mean, how far along he was on it, but, but clearly he had, and Roth had a vision for what they wanted to do with it. And Okay. Now, now the guy, the other Angelus, is that his name? Pete Angelus, right? Okay. Pete Angelus. Who? No, is if he you look one of the fabulous uh, Picasso brother guys. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he's the other guy in the video. So he was, you know, he was Roth's uh, conspirator, uh, co-conspirator. He was the guy they they were close at that time, and they bounced ideas off each other. And he ended up managing Roth, Roth's okay. solo career. So. And he was so, also in some music videos too. Was he was correct. in uh, what? Was he in Yankee Rose? He was in, yeah, he was in the beginning of the, I believe in the beginning of the Yankee Rose. Yes, he was in the Yankee Rose video. He was in all the videos. And then he went on to manage the Black Crows. Oh, wow. So So what was was his history? Like how, how, how did he become in with Roth? How did he get in with Roth? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Pete's a very, very funny guy. Pete told me a story where he met those guys basically on the Sunset Strip in uh, in 1977 because he was working at the Whiskey and he had a, uh, 
a poor initial interaction. I'll, I'll, I'll keep the story short, but he had a poor initial interaction with those guys. And eventually he and Dave sat down at the bar and had a beer together and they started talking and Angelus had been in film school and Angelus had some ideas for the light show for this is in the club, the end of the club days for Van Halen. And he became one of their, their most trusted employees and he survived. I mean, people come and go on these, these tours, tour managers, these types of things, but he was, he was there from 77 through the breakup and then was with Roth until probably 91 or so. As so in, in what, in what, like what capacity was he a tour manager? He was the, I believe the head of lighting at first head and then became okay. then the creative consultant if, and lighting director. So if you read the, the back of the liner notes of the albums, it'll say Pete Angelo's creative consultant. So working on the artwork for the albums, thinking about, what are the stages going to look like? What's the lights going to look like? What are we, how are we going to put the, put the show together? And then he eventually after Van Halen breaks up, he becomes Roth's manager. He manages David Lee Roth. Right. So crazy from the heat is out. And, uh, it, it, is it safe to say that, that Eddie did not like the fact that this album, this EP became so popular? Do we know that? I, you know, if you there's an interview that I would urge everyone to take a minute and look up on on YouTube and watch. It's about a 10 minute interview with Martha Quinn. It was done in January or February of 1985 at the Hard Rock in New York. So if you search, you know Google Hard Rock Van Halen 1985, it's Eddie and Valerie sitting together, and it's this very awkward interview where Eddie's nervously drinking his beer. Um, Martha Quinn is asking perfectly appropriate questions like. So when's the new album going to come out? Who's producing it? Eddie announces kind of offhandedly, oh, Ted's not going to do the record. Don Landy and I, uh, Don Landy being the engineer who had worked closely with Eddie in 1984 and had been with on the Van Halen record since the, the beginning, he, we're going to produce it. Um, and there's this interesting moment where, um, you know, he says something like, oh, I've got enough material for two solo records. And you can see Valerie sort of encouraging him to keep talking about that. Right. And you can sort of see there, there's like this, there's this, you know, the, the, the pitch of the interview is what's going on with Van Halen. And there's just all of this, this fuzziness. And you can sort of see the conversation, the way Eddie's responding as he doesn't want, he has this sort of lack of confidence in your Van Halen. Valerie seems to be encouraging the fact that, Hey, you know what? You're look, you could make a solo record, which I have no doubt he could have, right. uh, could have made one at the time. And so there's this, 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 you can sort of see the wheels are coming off and it's this, it's very awkward, very awkward. And it's really very, very telling. He's got the short hair. He's just cut his hair short and he's in this, uh, this varsity jacket with an MTV logo on it. One of those like a uh, high school or college red, you know, leather sleeve jackets. It's very interesting to see this so is there is there one day that we know of? It's obviously not April first. We've said that it's more like July. But is there one day prior to the uh, kind of word getting out in July where things come to a head and it's over? You know, one this is this is it, or does it kind of just peter out? And they, no, I mean there's there's a you know by June, if I'm remembering correctly, Roth has has enlisted Billy Sheehan. For his new group. And so some point in there in around May or June, early June, there's this meeting at Roth's house that Roth talks about in his book and Eddie's talked about where they get together and it's to sort of hash out what the hell's going on. And they basically decide, according to Roth, to go their separate ways. Roth talks about how we hugged, you know, we cried together. Right. We wished each other the best and we walked away. And the interesting thing is that if you read Roth's book, he seems to imply that he thought it was going to be amicable or at least publicly it was going to be amicable. It was one of these things where no one was going to go down and basically throw punches or anything like that. It was going to be we're going in a different direction, whatever it was going to be. Or, you know, this is just sort of my reading between the lines, you know, maybe in Roth's mind he thinks – I do my solo record and then we get back together, sort of like the way the Stones used to do in the in the 80s. Like they didn't officially, quote unquote, break up, but there's sort of this mix doing a solo record. There's nothing going on with the Stones and everyone right. sort of just is is a little bit grumpy at each other. But no one, you know, uh, Mick doesn't come out and rip Keith and Keith doesn't rip Mick. But, but you know, um, so, soon after that, Roth went full on ahead with, of course, with this new band and everything. And so, you know, in terms of what he's doing with his career as well. He has kind of gone all in now on the idea of having his own band and trying to make this movie. 
the aborted crazy he which never ends up getting made but this is the idea is to make a, a movie with starring david lee roth so so and what happens with the movie why does it never get made you think a guy they, as famous as as roth was at that point could have gotten the movie made they what ended up happening with the movie is roth and Angelus had a movie deal, full-on, full-blown movie deal with CBS Theatrical Pictures. CBS Theatrical Pictures had had a couple of unsuccessful years. They were also involved in – CBS was also involved in litigation and trying to fight off a hostile takeover from Ted Turner. Right. And so what ended up happening is – if I'm remembering correctly, my memory might be a little bit off. In the fall, November, something like that uh, – Angelus gets a call and it's from and their attorney and Ross in the room and they're talking to the attorney and the attorney tells them, I just got a call from CBS. They pulled the plug. The movie deal is gone. And so CBS theatrical films just closed up shop. So it wasn't as if they dropped Roth. Let's say there were seven or eight movies in development. They cl- they closed down the whole thing. And so that's how they were left without a movie deal. But they were ready to start shooting the movie. They had the script. They had the costumes. In fact, uh, Billy Sheehan has told me that the costumes, all of the costumes that were in all of the videos, Yankee Rose, California Girls, all of that stuff was going to be used for the movie. The characters, even a lot of the characters that sort of appear briefly in some of the videos, the California Girls video or Just a Gigolo video, some of these weird characters that that were uh, cartoon character type people, they were going to be sort of in the scenes in the movie, maybe not have speaking parts, but they were going to be in the movie. And so they were all ready to go, and then the plug got pulled. And then once that happened, Roth decided to go full on with doing a record. The The twist to that is the idea was that they were going to make a movie, and when the movie came out, it was going to be like Purple Rain was. There's going to be a Purple Rain movie, and there's going to be the Purple Rain soundtrack. So there's supposed to be a movie, Crazy from the Heat, and there was going to be a soundtrack to go along with it. But once the movie fell off, Right. They had written us some songs that were going to appear in the movie. Uh, for example, Shy Boy was going to be in the movie. That's Life was going to be in the movie. Some of the other songs were going to be in the movie. They just went ahead with the idea of just doing a rock record, doing the tour rather than worrying about trying to roll out the movie. But it was um, – it, it, Angelus, when I interviewed him, he said it was you know, it was a crushing blow to those guys, meaning that yeah. they were like ready to go. It was like we're going to start this week or they were starting in like, just days from starting the shoot. And so to have that – and like that was very disappointing. They litigated, which took a lot of time too. They had to had to do depositions, uh, give evidence to try to recoup the money. And I'm not sure how all the money came out, but uh, there was definitely a lawsuit. They sued basically CBS. And then by that point, I, I'm actually I'm forgetting exactly when 5150 came out. But 5150 was out before early, even Smile was out. Yeah, right. Early so, 86. And so that may have also maybe in, in Ross' head the clock might have really been ticking. Like we just can't we can't start up the movie. I got to get my career back going, and the best way to do that is to do do the record with the band and Ted Templeman. Right, and, and okay, so so to to jump ahead a, a little bit, then the well, not actually not that much. Uh, let's see, March nineteen eighty six, fifty one fifty is released, and we've we've heard many times through, you know, in interviews and stuff, how how the Sammy came into the fold. I will just say personally, as as a kid, I remember getting that record and being quite disappointed. You know, there was a few hard harder rock numbers, but there was also very heavy on the keyboards. And the thing that that disappointed me most about the record, because I had been a Hagar fan, I had seen Hagar on the uh, VOA tour, one of my first concerts, probably mm-hmm. third concert or something, and loved Hagar. So I thought when the news came out that okay, Hagar is going to be in teaming up with Eddie Van Halen, I thought it was just going to be fantastic. And and maybe I was in the minority because I know the album did sell well, but it wasn't the hard driving rock sound and heavy metal sound for the most part. There was a couple songs on Mm -hmm. there, but you know, that, that Van Halen had had with those first six records. And, um, I was, I was disappointed. I, it was also disappointed in Eddie's guitar sound changed mm-hmm. on the record so it wasn't even the more commercial songs the the keyboards his guitar tone and and sound was no longer quite as big as it used to be do you agree with that yeah i think that the the whole production on the record for me i don't think it's aged super well and again 
you know, I had 5150. I wore out the tape. I saw the tour twice in New Jersey. I saw two shows. And so, you know, I'm trying to do some revisionist history. I'm trying to bash the record. It's just to me. Yeah, it's sort of the, you know, Eddie has a more effective guitar sound. The whole album has more of a soft feel to it. And I'm not super crazy about the drum sound. Um, you know, I, I think part of that may have been just the Eddie indulging things he had maybe wanted to do that maybe in the past with Templeman and Roth in the room maybe wouldn't have wouldn't have been um, accepted with open arms. Uh, I, I know from talking to Templeman, he was not super enthused at first with Jump, and he never really loved I'll Wait. But after Jump got worked up, he thought, "Wow, this is really you know." He thought it was amazing, especially with the 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 vocal. Uh, excuse me, the uh, the lyrics that Roth came up with and the way the whole song came together, he thought that it had really come together well. But, you know, there was this hesitancy among guys in the band, including Eddie's brother, from what I understand early on, to sort of be like, we don't want to become that keyboard focused band. And those and they seem to have found a way, though, with 5150 to sort of walk that line where people still saw Eddie as a guitar hero. But yet it seems to me the keyboards, if anything, just sort of. Yeah, I mean, bro- just broadened out Eddie's genius to a lot of people. You know, the bands I was into at that time were, you know, Maiden. Metallica. Sure. Um, I, you know, I, I liked uh, like the thrash stuff, but I also liked the, the, the more glammy stuff, the Motley Crue, the, the, I, you know, even liked a little poison. They were coming out right around that time. I was into all that, you know, and then I still loved the seventies era hard rock stuff was still just getting played over and over again on FM radio, the right. Zeppelins, the bad company, all that great stuff. So for me, there, there, fifty-one fifty lost that edge that Van Halen had, that hard edge. So when Edom and Smile arrived three, four months after fifty-one fifty, it was like this is Van Halen. It was like to me, Edom and Smile sounded more like the first six Van Halen records right. than fifty-one fifty did. And you know, there was more to it too. You know, there was the the, the singles getting played on the radio on on commercial pop radio from 5150 the fact that they 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 came out in their new look it no longer looked rock or metal to me they had they had cut the hair the mullets you know and then Roth arrives with this record which is to this day one of my favorite records and it, it and it was just I was at that moment after Edom and Smile hit. I, I liked Van Halen, and I, I, I still appreciated what they were doing with, with with Sammy. And I bought the albums, and I went and saw them in concert. But to me, I was definitely on Team Roth because mm-hmm. he, after delivering this EP, you know, Crazy from the Heat, which was more cover songs and mellower. I guess a lot of us were afraid. Well, what what's his solo record going to be like? And he gave a one-two punch right in your face. And again, the album sounded more Van Halen than Fifty-One Fifty did to me. And and it wasn't just Roth. He had he had Templeman with him on the record. You know, he had that same kind of production sound that they had on those first six Van Halen records. Do you do we know what Roth thought of fifty one fifty and was there a conscious <laughs> effort like hey we're gonna keep our hair you know long we're gonna we're gonna keep wearing the 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 cool rock clothes and, right. and we're gonna you know have this raw rock and roll sound on the the album uh, because Van Halen doesn't have that anymore was he it, was he conscious of of I, where Van Halen went with fifty one fifty you know that's interesting that's like one of the to me one of the the things I would love to to ask David Lee Roth, I, I'm sure he heard some of the material that was on, on 5150. I'm sure he heard a, ch- a good chunk of it. And that's the interesting thing is like, what did the, what did he hear? Um, I know that, uh, Roth had a tape that he supposedly lost, but he, I, you can be sure that he would had was familiar at least what the musical ideas were to some extent. Uh, right. Templeman well, too, it had heard him on the radio at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know how, when he finished recording Eat Him and Smile, but you yeah, know, the album was, was four months, I think, three to four months before, uh, you know, Eat Him and Smile was released. Yeah, the album was probably largely done at that point. But I think Roth certainly had decided that he was going to do much more of a 
yeah, an aggressive, an aggressive album. There's, there's that diversity is there. You still have, you know, I'm easy and a couple of other songs. That's life, which seemed to be a tip of the hat to the EP stuff right, and really sure. fit with, with Ross Schmalty, vaudevillian side of him. And really, I think actually comes off well on the record for him, but you know, the, you know, uh, elephant gun shy going boy. crazy, shy boy, Yankee Rose. I mean that, I think which, yeah, you're, you're on target with that stuff seemed to me to be more in, in the spirit of the early, of the early Van Halen records. Right. Um, but it's worth, it's worth remarking as well in terms of the tour sales, the 5150 tour, so you know they they sold a lot more tickets than than uh, Roth did. Right. I, they did three nights in uh, New Jersey, yeah. huge arena, eighteen thousand people. They were doing multiple. The Van Halen brand, for what it's worth, definitely paid dividends. I think the brothers having the name and having the band and just sort of having them, you know, that whole the basically the the. The aftermath of 1984 with Van Halen becoming the biggest band in the world. You take Roth out of it. Roth has the name value as well, but it's nowhere near as as important. And it's it's uh, again the the, the uh, Roth tour did well, but didn't sell tickets anywhere near like the. Right. Uh, well, I remember he did he did one night in Chicago where I saw right. him, and it had to be sold out. I'm pretty sure. I mean, if it wasn't, it was just about sold out. But then again, Chicago is a major market, so you know, who knows what he did in you know, uh, Cincinnati or some, you know, Kansas city or somewhere a little smaller. I don't know, but yeah, the album definitely to me rocked hard, you know, big trouble was on that with great song, bump and grind elephant gun. Like you said, yeah, just, uh, I don't know. I thought it was such a, a better record. Um, do you, do you know when they came out with OU812, was that a reference to the eat em and smile title <laughs> on Ross album? Well, the story I've read about that is that Alex was riding on the highway and looked over at a truck and the truck had some some close the numbers on the side of the truck were something close to OU812 or that maybe it was OU812 and he laughed hysterically and remembered. So I I don't know. But I mean, that that wouldn't surprise me if they 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 picked up on the double meaning there. Um, And again, that that story by Alex. I mean, I've read that in one interview. I mean, he may have made that up for the interview, but that's the uh, the story he tells that that's where that that came from um yeah though that album produced by don landy if i remember correctly and uh van halen right that was the right. that was the one that they did without mick jones and don landy's last appearance on a van halen record right and then ted templeton comes back into the the uh van halen world right what, what album was that uh the next record all right that was the f-u-c-k record so right. uh what had happened is that Right there was this Roth, Roth and Templeman basically go off and do the Edom and Smile project. In the years that followed, Eddie and Ted worked together on a couple of records by a band called Private Life, which was a Warner Brothers band. You know, kind of a I, you know I kind of equate them sort of like a honeymoon suite type of band, a little bit more poppy, but a, a hard rock sound. It didn't the album didn't sell particularly well, but those albums were recorded at fifty one fifty, and so. Ted and Eddie worked on those records together. And then what ends up happening in 1990 or 1991, when they're working on the, uh, what's going to be called the fuck record that as Sammy notes in his book, that he became frustrated with Andy Johns, did not want to work with Andy Johns any longer and demanded that Templeman be brought in to produce his vocals. And that's what ended up happening. And of course, Ted had worked with Sammy, what back in the Montrose days. Oh yeah, exactly. So that's where that worked out is that Ted, uh, came in it seems because andy and sammy did not get along at all and so this was a way of sort of going okay we'll work on the vocals you guys do the rest and we'll sort of come together and get it all done but that was how that all ended up happening that that, uh ted was brought back in for that record well interesting stuff and circling back to to the edom and smile band uh you know we know dave knew billy sheehan for a while because he had uh the Van Halen had a Talus, Billy's band out uh-huh. of Buffalo, New York, open for them, and you know, Billy was a one of the one of a kind bass player. So everyone took notice, and we now know that that there were even times where they thought about bringing Billy into Van Halen. You know that that's something Billy has has said. Uh, this is before Dave left, of course. So it, it makes perfect sense that that. Uh, 
Dave would would get Billy in his band, but what about Steve Vai? Where, where did Dave and Steve first meet? Do you have any info on that? I do. So the initial, the first guy that Roth called was Sheehan, and so he recruits Sheehan, and then the person that that he has his eye on is actually Steve Stevens. Now Steve Stevens ends up doing the Atomic Playboys record for Warner Brothers. So yeah. what had already happened is there already been an overture between Warner Brothers Records and Steve Stevens to do a solo record. And so there was already these connections there. So was Roth, Steve out of I- Billy Idol's band? At he, he was not. He was not. But he had made a deal basically to do the, the I think it's the Whiplash Smile record. Is that right? That may not be right. The, whatever the last the album they were doing, 1985 with Billy Idol, that album was going to be finished. And then he wanted to do a solo record yeah, smile would have been later so I okay don't know what that, which yeah, one but... is the it was the uh the one that followed up rebel yell the conversation happens in new york steve steven says look the timeline you want is basically you want me to come work for you right now meaning roth i want you, you know I want steve stevens to go start writing songs right now he's like i can't do it and so the next guy who i guess gets seriously considered is steve vi templeman told me that he and Dave sat and listened to a cassette of Steve Vai's flexible record. I think it was the flexible record in a garage somewhere in Los Angeles, sort of like, you know, in a car, car park, they were sitting there with this boom box listening because David come to see Ted and they're talking and he's like, yeah, this is the guy. I mean, he's, he's great. He's, you should go get him. And so then he calls Steve Vai. Steve Vai is finishing up his stint in Alcatraz and then he joins up with Sheehan and then Sheehan, uh, Vai and, Vi's drummer, who's unfortunately his name is escaping me. I apologize for not being able to remember it. Are actually, are are working in Roth's basement for some period of right. time. In the fall, Roth decides for whatever reason that he wants a different drummer. By again, apologies, I can't remember Vi's drummer's name off the top of my head. Um, for by all accounts, this guy was an amazing drummer. It just was for whatever reason Dave wanted to go a different direction. They end up getting Bissonette, and then you have the band together by the by the fall of '85. Right. And by the way, uh, I was wrong about that. You were right. Whiplash Smile was 86. I was thinking. Of oh, it was the one. OK, I was yeah. I was right. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, they're not very memorable records, in my yeah. opinion. So, yeah, Whiplash Smile had, uh, I think, one hit to be a lover, according to uh, Wikipedia. But uh, so, OK, so Vi's drummer was was being considered. I, you know, was that the same guy who played on Flexible with him? Because that would have been Zach. I believe so, that's right. That's right. I'm yeah, trying okay, to see if like, I can come up with it. Is it Chad Wackerman? I would have to look up the No, name. that's not his name. And, of course, I'm, I'm killing myself. I can't remember his name here. But he, uh, you know, he was – he's a great drummer. And that's that's sort of, you know, the – when I talked to those guys about it, inter- interviewing them for an article I did for Guitar World magazine, they were sort of – you know, all of them – they didn't – they were included in apparently what Ross just thinking was. It was just – Dave wants to go a different direction. It's Dave's band. Dave can do whatever he wants, basically, and that's how it uh, ended up ended up happening. And they they ended up recruiting uh, Bissonette. Interesting. Bissonette. Yeah, definitely. Um, now I'm, I'm I'm on. I'm trying to figure out who that drummer was. Chris, no, uh, Sex and Religion. Yes, so. that's right. Chad Wackerman. Chris. Chris. Chris Frazier. Chris Frazier, I believe, is yeah. the person. Yes. Okay. Yes. There you go. Interesting. So I guess, uh, yeah, because Vi had been playing with Alcatraz before that, but I believe he leaves Alcatraz to, to join uh, David Lee Roth. So, yeah, interesting history. Yeah, it's always great talking to Van Halen. And, uh, you, you know, I got to ask you, I don't know if you can uh, reveal if this is even happening, but any plans on, on writing another book? Because your book is so good. Again, it's Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal and it goes really early on it kind of traces even the van halen brothers and the all you know roth's childhood too up into the uh the first record or there shortly after were you considering doing another book that picks picks up where where this one left off well let me be a little bit coy here because i don't have a have it um put together fully enough to say what exactly I'm going to do, but it's going to be a Van Halen related book. I'll say that it's going to have, it'll, it'll, if you're a Van Halen fan, I think it'll be of interest. So, um, keep my powder dry for now, but yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the kind words and, uh, it's been, uh, fun to talk to you tonight. I just, you know, I can talk about this stuff all night. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. We've, we're at 50 minutes here, so we will wrap it up shortly. But uh, just just a, a final note, kind of to jump into uh, current times here. It's kind of been quiet on the Van Halen front. It appears that possibly that you know show that they did with Roth at the Hollywood Bowl a, a while back may have been the final show with Roth, but nothing else has really been announced at this point. And uh, any guesses to where where things go? I mean, there was this thing with David Lee Roth where he was going to possibly reunite with the Edom and Smile band, but the fire marshal closed down the club, so it yeah. never happened. And I kept thinking, well, they'll they'll maybe do a, a tour or something, that lineup, but that never happened. And that makes me wonder is Dave just kind of waiting to see what happens with, with Van Halen? Like what's, what's going on? Any insight? Well, I, I think we can be pretty confident. They're not recording new material from what I understand. Wolfgang still camped out at 5150 finishing his, his record, which I'm looking forward to hearing. Yeah. I know he's played drums on it. He's playing guitar, he's playing bass. And so it's going to be really cool to hear that when that's done. But from what I understand, that's still ongoing. And so I don't think we're going to see a new Van Halen record soon. I, Reading between the lines, my speculation, I suspect that's what's going on is that it's Roth is in a holding pattern waiting for them to make the next move. Uh, he's been, I think, trying to demonstrate to everyone who will pay any attention that I want to make music. I want to sing in the studio. I want to perform. I want to entertain. He's puts out these Roth show episodes, which are eclectic to say the least, but right. almost always have some some song he's covered or something, you know, covered a Van Morrison song a few weeks ago. He's put together this, this material and he's doing it in Henson studios out in Hollywood. So, you know, I don't think he there, he's working there for free. And so he's spending his own money doing this. And I think it's, you know, it's almost like him saying, it's like, I'm ready, you know, I'm in the studio, I'm ready to make new music. I want to do this. And, um, for the others, you know, I can't speak to what exactly is going on. However, other than to say, it doesn't seem to me like anything's happening in the world of, of Van Halen, uh, in terms of a, a band so, album or tour. I don't, I don't think anything's, I don't think anything's in the works, but who knows? I mean, tomorrow we could find out Hagar's back in the band, right? I mean, that's just yeah. the way it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems as though Roth, I mean, he, he even mentioned after that thing was canceled at the, uh, I forget the name of the club in, in LA where they were going to try to do mm-hmm. this eat and smile, uh, reunion, um, yeah, I, I should know the name of that club. I forgot though. But anyways, uh, he he mentioned something. Oh well, maybe we should do this down. Yes. At, uh, what did he say? The Palladium or something? Is that what? Yes. He says? Yeah. So yeah, exactly what he said. So when he said that to me, that I I, I was like, oh wow, they're gonna do an Eat 'Em and Smile band reunion, and, and yeah, it never happened. It's just uh, seems the the lack of anything, uh, even interviews from him it just seems strange i mean like you said he does these internet shows where he controls everything and and you know right. they're definitely interesting but and and out there in my opinion but it's like there's there's no yeah. i don't know just why wouldn't he do an interview like no no interview with rolling stone no no talking with anyone you know it's just uh seems strange it's it's definitely a different david lee roth I, i'll also say that um, for this article I did for Guitar World a few months back, I got to interview Billy, Steve, and Greg Bissonette. All three of them made clear in so many words that if the schedule was clear and Roth called, they would all be willing to do it. So, right. you know, none of them were saying, "Oh, it's going to happen," or "Don't worry, I'm," you know, "I'm," I'm you know, there. It's all of them were adamant to say it's Dave's call. You know, I can't say what's going to happen. I'm just saying if if I got a phone call, I would do everything in my power to make it happen. So that was my read from those guys that they, they are willing and interested and would like to do it. Especially Vi was, was particular and, and she in particular were both were saying how much they'd like to do it. Uh, so, you know, I think the ball's in Dave's court. If Dave wants to do it, I think those guys would, you know, they're all busy, especially Vi and she in and those guys and, and, uh, this and that's a studio drummer, uh, does sessions all the time. They're busy, but I think they would, they would do it. So, it's on Dave, right? To decide that right. he wants to pull the trigger, and maybe you know, maybe things are already in motion. Uh, I know Winery Dogs are doing stuff, and I know Vi is celebrating the anniversary of his great solo record 
in uh, Passion and Warfare. I think it's the 25th right. anniversary. So I don't know. We'll I see. wonder what I, the draw would be for that. I mean, I, I don't I don't think they're going to be doing arenas, but definitely selling out big theaters. I think. I, I think you know, and I think yeah, and I think that's that's okay. I mean, I think that would be goes back to the old show business adage, right? Sell out the place you can sell out. Don't don't try to oversell it. And I think to me, it would be. Uh, a great spectacle and there's you know age has caught up to everybody but i would really really be excited to see those three guys bissonette is such a great drummer those the musicianship is off the off the hook and he, the other thing that is worth mentioning too is that sheehan said to me yeah i would do you know i would do a song or two i mean none of those guys were saying no to any from what i gathered anything you know if they said maybe not a record but hey let's do two songs you know let's right. do an old two songs or something or one song for the tour they they would they do it. So I think that that would be uh, an exciting thing. Of course, as you observe, you know, we all thought this was going to happen six, eight months ago that we would get an announcement about this. And, you know, again, I go back to the thing I, I suspect, I don't know that Dave is probably again, waiting for the other shoe to drop before he makes his move. Right. Right. Interesting. And, you know, I remember we had Billy Sheehan on talking metal back a while ago and he mentioned i think during that interview that dave had one night over many glass bottles of wine said that he wanted to put back together the eat and smile band and this is yeah. years ago this is like you know i don't know had to, before he was in before he rejoined van halen oh, Actually, yeah. i think it was shortly before that from what yeah. i remember so uh interesting interesting stuff anyways greg renoff the author of van halen rising how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. It's available on Amazon. And what's your site, Greg? Uh, VanHalenRising.com. And then I also just say people check me out on Twitter. Let's connect at, at Greg Renoff. And uh, always appreciate the time. Love talking Van Halen with you, Mark. And uh, thank you for so just a great support over the over the months. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for giving us some great Van Halen discussion here on talking metal greg you take care and we're gonna wrap up today's show with a song off the edom and smile record this is big trouble love this song uh, lo love how the, just the aggression in steve Vai's playing on this record he's he always delivers some some melodic and technically great stuff but sometimes i feel like the aggression that he has on this this edom and smile record uh isn't always there on all his other records and i think that's one of the things that makes this record just such a great rock record, David Lee Ross, Eat em and Smile record. Again, this is Big Trouble. Greg Renoff has been our guest today. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Uh, yeah.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.